Hi everyone, welcome back to The Word at Work. In this episode, we're in Matthew chapters 8 to 10 again. That's the series I'm busy with. And specifically today, we'll be looking at Matthew 8 uh, verses 18 to 22. Uh, I'm sure we've all had, had times when you, you kind of we build up expectations about something and then those expectations aren't met. Maybe it's, um, it's a holiday, maybe it's a night out. It's almost a cliche, isn't it, to say that the past 18 months have been the, the year of kind of broken expectations just given this uh, pandemic. All of us could think of, of some time in our life when, when expectations have just not been met or, or they've been shattered by reality, you could put it that way. As Jesus' profile and his popularity grew, certain expectations developed about who he was and kind of what it meant to follow him. Uh, and. The same is true today. People have certain expectations about who Jesus is, what it means to follow him. And when we turn to God's word, often we see those expectations quite seriously uh, adjusted. Uh, last time we saw that the, these amazing miracles that Jesus performs, that they point to Jesus' authority as God's Messiah. That's what Jesus says when you get to Matthew 11. Uh, we see also that with the reference to the, the suffering servant of Isaiah, that Jesus is showing himself not just to be the all-powerful Son of God, but also that suffering servant figure who takes up our, takes up our sin um, and our infirmities. The miracles, of course, also pull a crowd. Okay, they, they have that effect. They point to who Jesus is, but they're also going to pull a crowd. Um, and so in between all these miracles, you see Jesus teaching people very clearly what it means to follow him. He's interested um, in people who understand what the miracles are doing. He's not interested in people who are just there for the hype. He wants people to respond appropriately to the miracles, uh, respond by repenting from their sin and putting their trust in him. And so in 8 verse 18, you see Jesus withdrawing from the hype, withdrawing from the crowd. And as he does that, he's confronted by two guys who, who claim to want to follow him. Well, have they, have they just been pulled by the miracles or, or are these guys serious about following Jesus? Let's see um, what they say to Jesus and how he responds. The first one makes a very bold claim. See it there in um, verse 19. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And look at Jesus' reply. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Uh, maybe like a lot of people back then, uh, this guy was desperate for the type of Messiah figure who could bring military power and, and freedom from the Romans. Uh, maybe he's convinced Jesus is, is, a, is a way to power for himself. Uh, yeah, I'll follow you wherever you go. If that's the case, well, Jesus' reply kind of shatters those expectations. Uh, he reminds this guy that, look, where, where I'm going... There's not even going to be a kind of base of operations. Foxes and birds will have more of a base than I will ever have. So this first would-be follower seems a little bit too quick in promising too much. And Jesus' response to me is very clear. He wasn't interested in having followers unless they had properly counted the cost, unless they had understood what it really means uh, to follow Jesus. And the same caution comes to us today. We should all know that the, the, the path of following Jesus is not going to be an easy one. Um, there'll be plenty of people, maybe you know someone like this in your life, who, who seems to have been radically changed. Uh, they say amazing things about Jesus. 
but they end up to be those, you know, those spiritual fireworks, lots of whiz-bang noise, and then all of a sudden just nothing. Every genuine decision to follow Christ must involve counting the cost and coming to terms with the fact that Jesus makes some big demands on our lives. So if, um, if the first guy promises uh, too much, the second guy is perhaps, um, well, he's too slow in acting. Uh, look what he says to Jesus. Uh, he opens up with a statement that sounds quite reasonable. Lord, um, yeah, I'll follow you, but first let me go and bury my father. Here's a, a pious, pious Jewish man who wants to do right by his family. You kind of think, what's wrong with that? Jesus' answer is shocking. Look what he says in verse 22. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. What he means, of course, is let those who are spiritually dead bury their physical dead. It's a radical view of humanity here. As Jesus looks at the world, as he sees people who are not following him, his conclusion is that they are like the dead. Yes, they're going about their lives, going about their business, doing funerals, doing this and that, but actually they are dead. Back to this disciple, though. How important does he really think Jesus is if he's willing to kind of put him on hold like this? We've all had experience. You phone the call center and uh, you've got something really important <laughs> to, to say to them and they just put you on hold. Um, it's never pleasant, but how serious for this guy who kind of seems to recognize Jesus as the Son of God, but then is willing to just put him on hold. Prioritizing the traditions of a dead world over the king of the world who can bring life to the dead. Of course, when Jesus says this, uh, he, he's not um, being disrespectful of families and family life. Elsewhere, he, he rebukes people for neglecting their families. But he is exposing the danger of a discipleship with kind of conditions attached, a discipleship with shared allegiances. And today, there is a version of Christianity out there which says, don't be too radical. Don't get too carried away. You know, I, yeah, I follow Jesus, but not in a way that challenges my, the, the expectations of my family, my culture, my colleagues, my peers. Um, that is not real discipleship. That discipleship with conditions, that is not how Jesus wants us to follow him. As we think about these two guys, I just want to close by reminding you, you know, the, the, the strong theme here is that we've got, to, we've got to count the cost if we're going to follow this king. But to properly count the cost, you've also got to understand the price that he's paid. Uh, let me explain. Did you notice in verse 20, there was that little title there, Son of Man, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Of course, that title uh, links to Daniel 7. There's a prophecy there of a Son of Man figure who will rule for all eternity with the authority of God. But then we saw last time that this all-powerful Son of Man, Son of God, is also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And so the Son of Man who calls you with that authority to follow him unconditionally is also the suffering servant who takes up your sins and is punished on your behalf. He carries them to the cross. That is the price he paid to make disciples. And so the one who calls you on this costly journey is also the one who loved you so much he was willing to die for you. That is grace, but you see it is a very costly grace. The kind of grace from which you expect a costly allegiance. 
Maybe you've heard the name uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German theologian in the 30s, who was actually in the late 30s sitting very comfortable in a tenured position at a New York seminary. Uh, he saw where his country, Germany, was headed under the Nazis, and he decided to return there, and he became one of a handful of German theologians who took a proper stand against the Nazis. Uh, and he was ultimately executed for taking that stand. Here's a man who, who understood the cost of discipleship, which in fact is, is the title of one of, his one of his most famous books. He understood the relationship between the free saving grace of God and the cost that puts on our lives. Here's a quote from that book. Costly grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. You see, in one sense, our salvation costs us nothing. In another sense, it costs us nothing less than everything. Join us uh, next time, episode three, we'll be looking at uh, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter nine. See you then.